Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Diane Gardner. Diane, welcome to the show. Henry, it's such a pleasure and honor to be on your program today. Thanks so much for having me. We're, we're glad to have you. So Diane is a business owner, an accountant, a certified tax coach, a speaker, and a best-selling author, and a whole bunch of other things, I'm sure, as well. She does it all. But we're going to focus certainly in the area of tax planning and helping people get prepared for taking best advantage of the tax code. Uh, her expertise, expertise rather, lies in the area of tax planning. Her goal is to make sure successful entrepreneurs across the United States are paying the least amount of income taxes they can legally pay. As a certified tax coach, she offers a free tax analysis for those interested in finding out if they're overpaying their income taxes. Her goal is to save taxes one business at a time through the use of proactive tax planning. So in this episode, Diane's going to share a little bit about her entrepreneurial journey, how she got to where she's at, particularly this particular path on her business. And of course, lots of valuable tips on on tax planning uh, for existing owners and for those who are planning to start their business. Diane lives in the Spokane, Washington area, and she enjoys time with her husband, her daughter, and a grandson in her spare time. So once again, Diane Gardner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Henry. We're glad to have you. And you and I made the connection because of um, one of your clients is uh, someone I've had on the show recently. And so we got connected together. And that's Jessica Rhodes. And so her accountant, as you mentioned, you're halfway across the country from where she is, or the whole way across the country, I think. The whole way, yeah. She's in Rhode Island, and I'm in northern Idaho. That's right. That's right. It goes to show you technology facilitates that these days. And so you're helping clients, as I read in the out in the – intro uh clients are whole, all around the country right i am yeah i'm now able to work nationwide which is pretty exciting yeah it's fantastic all right so you attended san jose state university if i've got that right and studied accounting right yes that was down in california that was a long time ago long time ago so what did you think you were going to do with that degree did you think you'd have your own firm or what was your thoughts back then Back then, I wanted to go to work in an accounting firm and make a difference in business owners' lives. And so I started on that road, but then realized that I could make more of a difference if I was out there doing my own thing than when I was working in a, in a good, bigger company. Yeah. So you never ended up at a big firm. You started your own right out of college, or was there a stint in between there that I missed? I did work for not a large firm, but a mid-sized firm for a few years and saw that just felt like they didn't give the customer service that was needed to their clients and thought I can do better. And so headed out on my own not too long after that. Okay. And that was a a general public accounting firm offering services, I'm sure, in a local area because at that time, obviously, we didn't have the connectivity we have now. So tell me a little bit about that business, starting that business, landing clients. What was that all like? Well, that was kind of a 
it was a completely different start than when I started over in Idaho 21 years ago. My first start was really rough because there was no internet or any of that kind of stuff back then. And to find clients, you pretty well had to just get out there and go knock on doors because right. you were limited to your town, basically, maybe a neighboring town. So it was really a rough start getting up and going. It took me a long time to get going. I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Um, as I mean, we can all say that in hindsight. <laughs> so it was. we finally got to the point where we had a pretty good business rolling, and then we had a major earthquake that hit our town and leveled over half of the town. Oh, wow. What, what year and are that, we talking about here? 86. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 89, in 89. 89, that the, was the big, the big one in the West Coast. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Loma Prieta, yeah. And after that, I just about went out of business because the wow. cash just turned off overnight in the town. Wow. I mean, there was just devastation everywhere. So I ended up selling my business a few couple years later, and I came home to Idaho and decided this time I was going to do it differently. I had a four-year-old by then, and I was just going to work from home and be a mom. And that lasted for a few years until, due to circumstances beyond my control, I found myself as a single mom and decided that I had better get a little more serious with this business. So I rented some office space and started getting out there knocking on doors and trying to find some clients because here again, the internet was kind of getting going but not very much yet to where it was still get out there and knock on doors and do that type of thing and didn't take me too long to get a clientele rolling. Because I already had a few, I just you know hadn't been pushing it working from home, and took off and went rolling, and things were going great. We were growing, um, moved every few years, kept doubling in size. Finally, bought a commercial building in 2007. Wow! And we all know what happens in 2008. <laughs> yeah, I bought at the top. <laughs> and so this was a space where you were going to take some of it and lease out some of it. No, I I was I bought the building and we were using all of it. Okay. But in 2008, I find myself as my clients who were either real estate or construction, either in those trades or in associated industries with them, as they were going out of business just right and left. And I found, found myself looking at this building and going, I wonder if I could rent out part of it. I mm. didn't end up doing that. I see. But it was a pretty scary time. And during that time period, I realized I needed to learn how to market. I knew nothing about marketing. I didn't have to as an accountant. And started learning about marketing and how to make myself different from the other, felt like 100 million accountants out there. How do you make yourself different? And so that's what sent me down the road of becoming a certified tax coach, was finding a niche okay. that I could meet and that I could work in and, and just be thrilled to work in that niche. Got it. So that's how you ended up now with this focus on tax coaching. It is, yes. Yeah, and it's been a wonderful niche to get to work with. I've met such um, such great uh, business owners and entrepreneurs, and it's been really cool. Excellent. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I want to get into the questions now, and some of these are questions I'm sure you get asked a lot. Some of them come from questions that I get asked a lot when I'm coaching clients or mentoring clients. And, of course, I, you know, I play CPA in my business every day, as all small business owners do. But let's start at the beginning when we're thinking about forming a business, creating an entity. What are the things that you usually advise people on to consider in choosing an entity? For most of us, a small business owner, I live in Texas. So we, we've got primarily a couple of options besides sole proprietor, and you'll explain why that's not the right way to go. But I've got an LLC, a limited liability company, or a corporation, whether it's subchapter S or not. Those are kind of my two choices. I tend to 
take the route of LLCs here in my last few ventures, but talk to me about what else I should be considering, the questions I should be asking to help me decide what the right entity is for me. Well, Henry, one of the biggest things I like to look at is what is your exposure to liability? What kind of protection do you need there? Because 10, 15, or even 20 years ago, we didn't take that into consideration nearly as much as we do today because today it seems like everybody wants a scapegoat or they want somebody to blame it on. And so we really have to look at the liability end of things almost more than just about anything. Now, I'm not an attorney and I don't, you know, I don't, you know, profess to be practicing law or anything like that, but looking at the liability side, and that's one of the reasons why I personally love LLCs. Now, not all states are LLC friendly. So if you're listening to this and you live in a state that's not LLC friendly, we, you know, then that's not necessarily an option or, or may, may or may not be an option anyhow. But an LLC being a limited liability company, from what I've been told by attorneys here in Idaho, that it can actually provide a better barrier between you and your business than even a corporation can mm. because you don't have as many ways you can pierce that corporate veil. Okay. So it's one of my favorite entities to work with if we have that opportunity in, you know, depending what state people live in. Right. And let me just interject. So Texas is also LLC friendly, as is Florida, as is Colorado. Those are just three states where I have personal experience owning LLCs. But explain briefly what it means when a state is not LLC friendly. Well, I'll give you an example. One of the states that's definitely not LLC friendly is the state of California. California not only has a minimum franchise tax of $800, whether you make a dollar or you lose money or you make you know, a bunch of money, the minimum tax of $800 on their corporations and their LLCs, but they have a gross receipts tax that they charge to an LLC. So you won't find very many LLCs in California because that gross receipts tax gets them. Because when you get down to that bottom line, you may or may not have much left over, but if you're paying tax on the gross number, that hurts. Yeah. So that's a good example of a non-LLC friendly state. Yeah, great example. In Texas, we have a franchise tax, but it doesn't kick in until above a million dollars in revenues. And so most small businesses obviously fall under that. But that's an important consideration. And that that's where you have to have someone like yourself or a CPA locally, someone who's going to give you tax advice and guidance on that, right? You bet. Yeah. And for myself, when we're talking to somebody about this very, very important decision, we have a whole checklist of things that we're running through to see what might be the best entity for this type of business. Are they, is French benefit something that's really important to them? Because if so, then we might need to look at a C corporation so that we can take advantage of those. Or is it more the liability protection? Or who is who? If they have multiple people involved in the business, what what is the ownership made up of? Is it just people, or is it people and other entities? Because then that can have a bearing on the type of entity you create yourself. So there's a lot to it, and we we could probably do a whole class on just entities. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, but let me, so liability, and then you touched a little bit on obviously on the tax considerations, but let's just touch a little bit more. What are some of those other key questions from a tax perspective that you ask to help somebody determine whether it's an LLC or a corporation? Well, from a tax perspective, I like to look and see what is that net profit of that business been over the last few years? Because I see an awful lot of people overpaying their taxes in 
when they're operating maybe as a sole proprietorship or as a general partnership because 100% of their net income is subject to self-employment tax. So there's a nice little sweet spot in there where we can potentially have somebody be taxed as an S-corp. They might be operating as an LLC, put them on some sort of an owner's salary and save them a bunch of self-employment tax. So that's a nice option when we can make that one work for them. I always advise my clients to never operate as a sole proprietor. Am I right on that or am I missing something? Well, I have a lot of clients who start out as a sole proprietor. And if they're in a business that isn't intensive as far as the need to protect yourself for liability reasons, then it's a nice entity just to kind of put your toe in the water and see if it's going to be okay before they incur money on setting up a separate entity. So maybe, it depends. Okay, and then that's a good validator is that, that liability question, what your exposure is there, and you need to speak with and consult with your professional, your attorney, your CPA to help you determine that. But if the liability potential is low, then it might be a good way to start is what you're saying. Right, yeah, because it doesn't cost anything, generally speaking. Maybe they right. have to register with the state, but minimal to get started as a sole proprietor and give it a try. Can you make this business be successful? Yeah. Okay, I want to move on then to one of the books that you've written is called Stop Overpaying Your Taxes, 11 Ways Entrepreneurs Overpay and How to Stop It Now. And uh, we don't have time, obviously, to go into all of it. People should pick up the book. But two that I want to dive into a little bit, two topics in those 11 ways that I want to chat about. One is travel deductions, because that's such a common one that I get a lot of questions about and even I'm challenged with sometimes. But let's talk about travel deductions. What are some of the common misunderstandings as it relates to T&E deductions, travel and expense deductions, or travel and entertainment, I should say? Well, one of the biggest misconceptions is that you do not need to have a written mileage log. And in fact, you do need to have a written mileage log, no matter which which um, format that you're taking for deducting, whether you're using the standard mileage allowance or you're using the actual expense method. Either way, you do need to have a written mileage log. And most people get confused on that. And they come in and they tell me, oh, I had 6,000 miles business miles last year. I had 10,000 business miles last year. And I look at them and go, do you want an audit? Because when you put a nice round number like that out there, the IRS knows for sure that you just pulled it out of the air. Right. So that is a huge one. It's supposed to be kept on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week type basis, not something that you're throwing together at the end of the year. Um, so it's, you know, it's always best if you keep it up current, whether you're doing it manually in a handwritten calendar, you're using an app on your phone, something, some way of tracking that business versus a personal miles. But Henry, one of the, the neatest things is we have so many people working from home anymore in these home businesses. And when they're using their home for their business and they're able to write off business use of their home, it actually increases their mileage allowance. It increases those miles because as soon as they step foot outside the door of their, quote, business or home, they can tend to be on deductible business miles, unlike somebody like myself, where when I drive from home to my office is not deductible, but from my office out to meet with a client, it is. Right. And so I have to stop at the office first if I want to be able to write off my miles for that day. And sometimes that's not always in the right direction for some people. That's like, 
I'm fortunate. Usually when I leave my house, I have to go by my office to get to wherever I need to go. So I'm pretty fortunate. But not everybody lives in that straight line to where you, you, just, you, you can just pretty well almost keep rolling and ride off those business miles. How do you track your business miles? I write them on a calendar and reimburse myself through my company periodically. So let's say you'd give an example. Obviously, when, in one situation I had in a business I used to own, we had two locations. And so obviously, like you said, you cannot write off the mileage from home to a location, but you can write off the mileage between those two locations going back and forth for whatever reason. And we, you know, we knew what the distance was and we kind of averaged that out. But if we would have gotten audited, we would have had to show a detailed log for those individual trips that added up to that deduction. Is that correct? Generally speaking, yes. Sometimes you'll get an auditor that that will take it, let's say you've recorded it for 90 days or right. four months or something out of the year, and then you can average that over the rest of the year. IRS says that is, that is an acceptable method. But occasionally you get a really hard-nosed auditor, and it's much nicer if you've just recorded it the whole year. We kind of call that the brute force method where we just keep on tracking them all year long. Yeah, got it. So Okay, so staying on, on T&E, I think it's surprising to me how many people don't realize that when it comes to meals, we don't write off 100%. And so, and there's also, it has to be reasonable. So just to refresh us on that and what is deductible as it relates to business meals. Well, business meals is kind of a fun one. Um, IRS says we have to have five different pieces of information. So we need the date. We need the name of the place where we went to eat. We need the dollar amount of what it costs. We need a note on there as to who we met with and what was the main topic of conversation as far as the business piece of it was. So given those five pieces of information. But what people tend to forget about on the meals deduction is what about those times when you have people over to your home for a barbecue, for a picnic, for pizza, for whatever, and they are business associates or their prospects or their customers or whatever for your business. And they tend to forget that they could actually deduct those types of meals as well. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. I, had, I didn't know that or I hadn't thought about that. But especially yeah. if you're in a type of business where you entertain your clients or your associates, those things are tax deductible. Keep the receipts, make a log, make notes of who was there, what the business was discussed, and then that's a legitimate write-off for a meal is what you're saying. You bet, yes. Keep good records, yeah. One that's very often uh, confusing with people is let's say you and I are married and we decide we're going to go out to dinner that night and while we're there we talk a little bit about business and so now we can write off our business meal, right? Depends. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Generally speaking, a husband and wife going out to dinner and just happening to talk about the business is not it does not constitute a deductible meal. A deductible meal is constituted when there is the idea that you will be getting some sort of business from it in some way, shape, or form. And so that's where it comes in with meeting with a customer or a prospect or a business associate or somebody who's a leader in your area or your field. Those kinds of things constitute a deductible business meal, not just you and I deciding we, we don't want to cook tonight, so we're going to go out to dinner and let's talk about something business so we can put it on the back of the receipt. 
What about if it's uh, so I had a business where myself, my wife, my brother, and we would gather once a week for planning meetings at a restaurant and it was strictly business discussion. Is that a tax deductible meal? Potentially. Or is that, or is that a meeting expense? That, that is more of a meeting expense that, yeah, that takes the form of a deductible meal okay. because that's a planned meeting. That's and in, not and the in that case, I, I can run. Off, I can write off one hundred percent of that. That's different than the T and E treatment, or or is it the same treatment as far as the deduction? Well, it can be potentially it depends on who else you have working in your business. If you've got other employees, if the meeting is available for all of them to attend, then it becomes one hundred percent deductible because we move it over into an area called employee benefits, okay. which pulls it out of that meals area. So that's where you get the Christmas party where you invite all of your employees to come or the summer barbecue or whatever, or you invite a bunch of your clients and you have your, your staff there to help. So that moves it away from that 50% deduction and into more of a promotion or an employee benefit type area. So the other thing I find challenging, Diana, with this whole category of travel entertainment is my understanding is there's this measure of what is reasonable for my business and my industry. Can you add a little color to that that one's always challenging um, and I've had some clients that in the past I think have really pushed the envelope in that area and no, so far knock on wood they have not ever had a question but reasonable means that it is something that you would expect to be seen in your industry and other people are doing it within your industry so it doesn't mean you can't take a client out to a five-star restaurant or put them up at some sort of a nice place and offer them some sort of a nice entertainment package of some sort, you know, to be able to, to derive business from it. So it's just every industry is a little different. So what would be reasonable in one industry may not be reasonable in another. Yeah. All right, very good. So the other topic in the book that stood out to me is this uh, the biggest mistake of all you said is failing to plan as it relates to tax preparation. So what, what does this tax planning look like typically for a small business owner? What should it look like? Well, I'm going to back up just a little bit on that question, Henry, and approach it from just a little bit different angle. Most people don't realize that there's different levels of engagement with their accountant or their tax preparer. So the level that everybody's always familiar with is just the tax preparation. I bring in my stuff, I, I need to have my tax return done, and so I ask you to do it. You get it all done correctly, it's done on time, and I file it, and off I go. I don't see you again until next year. Then the next rung up that ladder is, is a tax projection. So then the client comes back, sometimes midsummer, in the fall, whatever, and we put together a projection for them that helps them see where they might end up for the end of the year, how much tax they might owe, how much they need to contribute to their retirement plan, or just basic things like that, and that's called a tax projection. Well, the next rung up that ladder is tax planning. And most small business owners and entrepreneurs don't realize that they can plan their way to a lower tax liability. They, they, they get so busy just running their business that when it comes tax time, they just kind of show up and want their tax return done and they take their lumps and they move on. But they really can plan their way to a lower tax liability with somebody who is a proactive um, tax planning type accountant, which 
um, anytime you see an account with the letter CTC behind their name stands for Certified Tax Coach and there's about 400 of us across the US and we have all been specifically trained on how to be strategically proactive on helping you plan your way to a lower tax liability. Okay, good perspective. And I think the other thing that happens to small business owners is we tend to look at wanting to avoid the professional expense, right? Attorneys only when we need them, a CPA only when we need it, like you said, to prepare the taxes. And we don't look at the benefit and the savings that that could result in by doing the tax planning. You bet. Yes, it's just an investment in the future of your business and in the future of your pocketbook. Yeah. Because generally, this is money that you are already giving to the government that you may not even need to because you weren't aware of certain things were deductible or certain strategies that you could use. All right. So, so to my initial question on what it looks like when you consult with a client then on tax planning, just give me a little taste on what are the things that you're looking at and, and what are the things that you're planning for? What, what does that look like and what do you ask for from the business owner? Well, Henry, I like to start out with taking a look at their last two years tax returns. And from there, I can get somewhat of a feel for what's been going on for that business. I, you know, I can't get it all because I can't see the behind the scenes stuff, but I can see the tax return and I can know that certain industries should have certain kinds of expenses and about how much they should have. And if I don't see that stuff, I'm starting to make some notes so that when I talk to the client, I can ask some follow-up questions. One of the things we're looking for is, are they in an entity that fits with where they are in their business? So it depends if they're in startup mode, they're in growth mode, they're in coasting to retirement mode, you know, whatever that might be, is their entity type meeting that requirement? And then if they're working from home, are they utilizing their business use of home? Are they, are they maximizing their auto deduction? Are they in a type of entity and business where maybe we could help them write off their medical expenses through their business because I see that they're losing them on their itemized deduction schedule? Or I'm looking at somebody that maybe it's time to start looking into a retirement plan or start maximizing a retirement plan if maybe they've just been contributing to an IRA for several years. So they're just a combination of a lot of things we start looking at. From there, I'd like to have a, about a 30-minute kind of little fact-finding meeting where we talk about some of the things I've seen and about how much I think they're overpaying. And then at that point, if they're interested, we go ahead and we launch into a full-blown tax planning session where I have them answer some question, a questionnaire that I have and submit it back to me. And then I go to work and I start running a whole bunch of different analysis and scenarios to come up with how much money that they're potentially overpaying in various different um, areas. And then I meet with them again and we go over all the strategies and we set up a plan to implement it and we decide who's going to implement what because sometimes they want to implement part of it. Sometimes they want me to implement all of it. It just depends. And then we go from there. We have a follow-up meeting down the road a little ways to make sure that everything got implemented the way it should. And then from that on, I try to meet with them at least a couple times a year, making sure that they're staying on track with their plan so that they're harvesting those maximum tax deductions. Great, great, great. That's great stuff. So what's one of the common or a couple of the common missed tax deductions that you see that entrepreneurs miss the opportunity on with their returns? A big one is medical. So many people are paying a ton of money out because now that everybody has to have insurance, they're paying a bunch of money out and then they're losing that deduction on their itemized deductions 
because they're phasing out, they have to have more than 10% of their income to be able to, to um, deduct any of those itemized deductions. Well, if we could come up with a way where they can legally deduct all that medical through their business, that can save them quite a bit of money in tax. So we look at little things like that. We look at, is there some way that they should be hiring their kids to work in their business? Do we have expenses in the family budget for summer camps and basketball camp and horse camp and private schools and things like that that they're spending money on that maybe we could put those kids to work in the business, pay them out of the business and pay for those extra things with that money. Mm. And so we'd like to look for ways we can take an after-tax expense and turn it into a pre-tax deduction. Yeah, very creative strategies, all completely legal within the tax code, and most people just simply don't know about those things. Definitely all IRS approved and court tested. Yep, no, I hear you. Okay, so this is a, a something I get asked a lot, and I, you know, I've dealt with it myself. And this is now we're talking about someone who's planning to start a business. They've got a business idea. They've been developing their business plan. They start to spend some money, maybe getting the entity created. Maybe they hired an attorney for that. Uh, expenses with the research, the analysis, maybe they attended some educational workshops, all stuff that are startup expenses, but you don't have the entity maybe formed yet. You don't have the bank account yet. You're paying for these things out of your own pocket. What's, what's your strategy and kind of what are the general rules on then getting that on the books, if you will, once you do have everything in order? Well, that's always a good one, Henry, because what I find is a lot of times they're not keeping records yet. They're right. not even thinking about being in business. And so by the time I see them, they may or may not have kept receipts. They may or may not have kept a calendar and tracked their miles and all that kind of stuff. So number one is keep all those receipts. Keep good records. Track your miles. Don't let those potential deductions evaporate just from lack of record keeping. Then Depending on when the business starts, ideally, if you've incurred that money and opened the business in the first year, you can deduct up to a certain percentage of those startup costs. Otherwise, they have to be capitalized and depreciated out over a period of time. So then you're not able to take them all necessarily in the year of startup. So it just kind of depends on there's some dollar limitations as well as some other things that go along with that first year depending on what they bought and what they spent their money on. So that the, the window of time between when I first start incurring expenses and I actually have an entity that I'm filing a return on, that affects whether I could expense or have to capitalize some of that? Am I following you correctly? Potentially. Okay. And, it, and it's, I can't give you a yes or no answer for sure because it depends on what they're spending depends, their money right. on. Exactly. Yeah. A, a laptop that I buy is going to be treated differently than uh, a, a workshop that I went to. Correct. Right. Yeah. And that's where it gets kind of sticky of just keep really good records and then we can make that determination of, okay, this piece of it, we can take the first year. The rest of this is going to have to be capitalized and depreciated. Um, so it just kind of depends. But let's say it takes me two years to develop this business. I'm keeping accurate records. I'm keeping all of my receipts. Is there any length of time that I that there's a look back period limit on when I can then roll up all of those expenses once I first start filing my return for the business is is there a look back limit for those expenses I think that look back limit is probably a couple years okay it's been a long time since I've had anybody who's had that particular scenario where they've bridged over more than about two year time period 
So if you're in that range, you need to talk to a tax advisor. You need to talk to someone like yourself, get some guidance on that so that you don't potentially lose out or understand what you might potentially lose out. It might be worth it to go ahead and create your entity, even though you may not be quote unquote operating so that you can start capturing that. Would that be possible, a possible strategy there? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want that clock to run out, especially let's say it took somebody six or seven years to get up into business. Right. At that point, they're, they've probably lost some of those early expenses. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's a reality they're going to have to face. And it, it doesn't sound like it happens very often, but it's amazing how many times I do come across people who are just, you know, they're navigating that idea. They go back and forth. They change their mind. They're trying to get educated. That's a lot of the folks that I meet with, especially in my capacity as a mentor with SCORE. There's a lot of those folks that fall into that category for all kinds of valid reasons. And so that's why this question has been so common for me and I wanted to right. get your input on it. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for addressing that. And it's a, it's a complicated, it's a lot of, a lot of what, if, what ifs there. So one of the key takeaways for our listeners, if you're in that position, is again, spend a little bit of money, invest some money in talking to a tax professional and get some guidance on this. All right, so uh, five simple steps to business growth and success is another thing that you've written about. Tell us, uh, or at least introduce those steps or a couple of those steps if you would. Henry, I think one of the most important steps in growing your business and being successful is knowing how to understand and read your financials. So many people don't have a clue what they what they say and what they mean. and I, ha- I mean, I will say I've had clients over the years that we prepare a financial statement for them and we, sh- we sit down with them and we, we talk it over. And I know that from that point on, every time I give it to them, they just file it away in the drawer and they don't even look at it. Yeah. So it's, it's knowing those numbers, watching your numbers, being able to know what they mean and using them for planning and for goal setting and that type of thing, knowing where your highest profit items are. Uh, making sure that all your products and services are profitable, that you don't have one or two out there that you're actually losing money on and knowing where to invest your time and your energy into that. Usually it's the 20% of what we offer gives us the 80% of our profit and knowing what those items are so you can invest your time and energy in those particular areas and not get, you know, using up all of our energies and efforts in someplace else in our business. Yeah, this is such a big topic. This is such a a big issue for small business owners. And what I always preach is you have to at least really must learn how to read a P&L and understand what it's telling you about your business on a monthly basis, in my opinion. And then depending on the type of business you have, your cash flow statement can be critical as well. I tend to not focus too much on my balance sheet, except for maybe during that planning or once a year. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You'll tell me that. But at least understanding your P&L and your cash flow statement, I I have to think, are critical to the survival of a business. Right. And I like to build that P&L out, if I can, to capture their main revenue items. Mm. So like in my own business, I have an income line on my P&L for bookkeeping and payroll. I have another one for income tax preparation. I have another one for my tax planning. And so then I associate my costs back to those three main revenue generators, and I can see which area of the business is actually generating the most profit. Okay, so So you'll you'll group that that stuff, even though it's not a traditional cost of goods sold, you'll arrange it such that you can see what your gross profit is on those revenue lines. 
Right, and a lot of accountants don't understand that because they want it to be that traditional chart of accounts type looking. Right. But I want I want it to mean something to my clients. And so if it means going in and really making a customized chart of accounts, then that's what we do so that they can gather that information and understand what's going on in their business. Yeah, I think that's great advice because the books should help you manage your business on a, on a daily basis. Your, your tax preparer can take care of then taking that and putting it into the proper, proper format for the IRS or whatever other entity. But if it's not serving you, there's something wrong. There's a disconnect and you really have to get on that. Any, any thoughts or tips on how people should, that people can take to learn how to understand their financial statements better? I know you can, there's a lot of stuff out there in Google and I'm sure in... Um, in YouTube. YouTube and I'm just trying to think I'm sure there's webinars and stuff like that out there I do seminars all the time but I don't have anything recorded on it yet just because I get asked that so often from people well how do you what do these things mean why do you even need to have an account and prepare these for you so I know I'm teaching a class in about two weeks on how to do that and how to understand and what it really means so that hopefully we'll get a group of, of business owners out there who are looking forward to those statements every month and eagerly waiting to see what do they say and how much better am I doing this month from last month or from this month this year to this month or the same month last year. Yeah, critical. It's critical to learn how to do that. The way I went about it early on, because I didn't have much accounting background or training, is every time I would meet with my CPA, I would ask questions. And sometimes it was the same question because it takes me a while to understand mm -hmm. these things. And so, and over time, you start to learn it and you, you just have to apply yourself to it. I think we often, as small business owners, take the excuse of, oh, I'm just not a numbers person. I'm too busy. I, I think that's hogwash. I think you must have your finger on these key metrics that are the financial health of your business. Yes, I agree 100%. Yes. All right, so summarize for me the, the services. We've touched on some of them, but it's the services that you offer your clients. Well, I, primarily we offer the proactive tax planning, but in <coughs> addition to that, we are a full-service accounting <coughs> office. So if we are working with a client on their tax planning needs, we're also available for bookkeeping, for payroll, for income tax preparation, kind of the normal stuff you would see in an accounting office. But we're, you know, like to lead off with tax planning because that's where the fun stuff is, yeah. is really getting in there and helping somebody make a difference on their tax return. And uh, do you offer a consultation? How do you typically engage with a prospective new client? Generally, it comes in through that free tax analysis, and that gives me the way to, to you know, open the door and be able to talk to them for a little bit and determine if we're a good fit for each other. Perfect. All right, and we'll make sure to include a link to that uh, in the show notes page. Let's talk about a book besides your books. Is there a book that you've read uh, recently or in the past that you would recommend to our audience? Probably my favorite book is The Go-Giver, written by Bob Berg. Because in, in business, if you don't give first, then I, I would think you'd have a really hard time ever being a successful business person because it's all about giving and sharing and helping others. Love that. So we'll have that uh, a link to that book and to your books on the show notes page for this episode. And you can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, we'll wrap it up here, Diane. A final parting piece of advice to 
our audience, particularly in this topic that we've been focusing on, on tax planning? Oh, I would say it's if you don't have a professional accountant working with you and you are already in business, you definitely should expend some time and energy and find one um, because I see too many businesses just kind of meandering their way through the path of being in business and, and hitting every landmine they can hit because they don't have a team built around them. And on that team, a very important area is your accountant. And I just, I believe that with all my heart because I just, I've seen it so much over my career of helping people. Yeah, great advice. And Diane, where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and your firm? Well, I would love for them to go out to www.taxcoachforyou.com, and that's using the number four. And when they go out there, I have one of my books that I just would uh, like to put in their hands. It's called The Ten Most Expensive Mistakes That Cost You Thousands. And we will be happy to mail that out to them if they just fill in their contact information. If they're interested in more um, information on tax planning, there's lots of, of videos, there's blogs, there's more books on that website so they can start understanding how tax planning works and the importance of it in their life. Yeah, great stuff. And that's a great book. And so we'll have a link to that in the show notes page as well as to your site and to this free download offer. And so you can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks so much for offering that. Diane, it's been uh, really insightful. I've learned some stuff. I know our listeners have learned lots. We could go on for hours talking about different topics. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your knowledge. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our, our talk today. Thanks, Diane. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.